0: We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Ploege with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher
1: with the Kansas Department of Wildlife Parks. Follow us on our outdoor adventures.
0: Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. Hey, this is Julia here with Tana. And a couple episodes back, we briefly mentioned the word depredation. Immediately, my brain juices started flowing and I instantly turned to my email to book today's guest that just happens to know a lot more about depredation than Tana and I know for sure. So I'm excited to hear and have this conversation today. So, we want to dedicate an entire episode on depredation because it truly brings together our biologists, our agriculturists, conservationists, and our hunters together working for a similar purpose. Our guest, Maria Bally Airy accepted my email invitation, and here she sits with us today via Zoom from Alliance, Nebraska. I invited Maria because her daily job with Nebraska Game & Parks just happens to be focused on depredation. So welcome, Maria, and will you please introduce yourself?
2: Hi, so I'm Maria. I work for Nebraska Game & Parks. I work out in the panhandle of Nebraska out of the Alliance office. I have a newer position and I was hired on basically to work on depredation and damage control for our producers and ranchers out here um, in the Panhandle. I do have a counterpart, Brian Perks and he handles the Southwest District.
0: Maria, just while I thinking about your background, did you have a background in agriculture as well for this position?
2: Actually, I did my bachelor's and my master's in environmental science. So I had a concentration in wildlife and I started with environmental education and kind of branched out into the research end of things. And the first state that actually offered me a job was Nebraska. So I moved out in 2014 and I've kind of jumped around some of our different programs for the state. And I did some depredation work out in California. So that gave me a leg up for this job here.
1: Maria, we always like to ask, um, I think so many of us in just like the wildlife and outdoor fields have come into our current jobs, at, like from an unusual path, we never really expected to be where we were sometimes. So I'm curious, is this a job you ever saw yourself in? Um, like even growing up or in school? Or is it something that you've kind of stumbled into?
2: I actually stumbled into this, believe it or not, I grew up in New York City. So I did not expect to move to Nebraska. Actually, it was probably one of the last states on my list I thought I'd I'd move to. And as far as the depredation and damage control, I never actually thought that I'd end up with a permanent job in that. I thought I would be doing more research with, you know, carnivores, big game, running around collaring and taking samples and DNA just about just like any wildlife student I guess at a college. And it just so happened One of my seasonal positions here in the state of Nebraska was ending and I had reached out and applied to jobs pretty much all over the country. And that's when California called uh, wildlife services. And, you know, they sat down and interviewed me and I kind of, I wasn't sure how I felt about the job originally. As I said, no one, I don't, I don't think most people go into the field thinking that they're going to be harassing and hazing wildlife and, you know, issuing occasional, you know, damage control permits and things like that. But the health and human safety part of things actually was an interest to me. So when I got out to California and was working out there, it was basically with birds and waterfowl. I worked on a Navy base and um, we had to keep the runway clear for the Navy pilots and all. And it was a nice way to kind of bridge that gap with human infrastructure and like wildlife and how they fit together. Um, and trying, you know, to be able to have the military run those, those programs safely that, you know, people's lives were not in danger, but also being able to manage the wildlife and accepting that wildlife was always going to be on the base. So it was, it was a nice change. Um, so when this position opened up in Nebraska, uh, I was pretty excited about it. I actually had just come off the mountain lion project here and was doing some research. Um, and I thought it'd be kind of nice to go back into more of the world, uh, trying to help the farmers and ranchers and folks that, you know, were trying to make a livelihood and, and trying to solve some of those wildlife issues. But no, I never actually thought I was going to, you know, accept a permanent position in the depredation world. So it's funny how things work, I guess.
1: Well, I'm sure Nebraska is very glad to have you. If you ever make your way out to Kansas, I hope you'll stop and say, hey, as well. But Maria, I'm curious, you know, as we get going, you've talked about harassing and hazing wildlife. So I'm sure our listeners ears are like perking up going, what the heck are we talking about today? So maybe before we get into the bulk of our conversation, would you be willing to just kind of define depredation for
2: us? Depredation is just a big word that kind of incorporates a few different things. Deals with wildlife species, whether it be big game species or non-game species. And just damages that occurred to uh, producers, agricultural crops, uh, occasional fences, trees, and other forms of, you know, agricultural profit. And it also deals with when wildlife poses threats to human health and safety. So it's basically just a word that encompasses many different things dealing with wildlife.
1: So Maria, maybe an example our listeners may have seen in the news recently, I think, was it out of California with the bears and they were having to haze the bears a little bit to keep them away from the road and away from people?
2: Yep, they actually have to do that in some of the national parks. Uh, so all different agencies use uh, different depredation tools and tactics, but for Yosemite National Park, they do have issues with the bears coming into the campgrounds and crossing of the roads. So basically they'll haze their bears for public safety. Hitting a bear would be equivalent to hitting a deer or an elk and can cause a lot of damage to your vehicle and you know, pose a threat to your, your safety. So, yep, bears, bears get hazed in the national park. Hazing is not typically something that I guess you would say it's more of a scare tactic. It doesn't necessarily hurt the animal. So those bears out there will have beanbags kind of shot at them just to scare them. Or we have something that we call a pyro pistol that shoots pyrotechnics. And, you know, you'll direct that at an animal or shoot above them. And that sound will actually, it'll spook them and and move them off the road.
1: Wow. Oh. well, and you mentioned that this was for human safety, but it's also for the safety of the animal too, right, Maria? Keeping them away from that roadside and away from human interaction.
2: Correct. Yep. So those, especially out in California, when it comes to the bears in the campgrounds, they can get habituated to being fed, which is something that we, we shouldn't do, but occasionally it does happen. So those hazing tactics help reinforce that fear of people for those animals to keep them safe and away from campgrounds.
0: I'm sensing a soapbox. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I think we should just, as we listen from the central part of the states here, and then we're hearing those conversations where the bears may be in different wildlife, it's certainly an issue. No matter what wildlife we have in our areas, these soapboxes of, I'm just sitting here like pondering. It's areas that us humans have taken over the lands that these wildlife were once at. So I don't know. We better move on, right?
1: Yeah. Well, friends, just another plug because Maria already mentioned it briefly, but let's let's not feed the wildlife. Well, exactly. Let's let the wildlife be Exactly. Um, with some minor exceptions to so maybe feeding backyard birds. If that's your MO, we understand we've done some topics on that as well. But even that, make sure you're doing so appropriately.
0: In our agricultural-based states, it seems crops such as corn uh, tend to be hit the hardest. At least that's what I read in the paper. That's what I see online. Uh, however, while you know doing some research before this episode, I was reading some guidelines on from the Fish and Wildlife Service website focusing on migratory birds and even local birds. So before then, I really didn't think about, like, the pigeon population that takes over our farm and circles my head. They sit on the silo and then constantly circle my head and irritate me. But, you know, on my farm or the Canadian geese taking over our urban pond, I, don't, I didn't see them as being a depredation, but it, it truly is. So share with us some different types of depredation scenarios that, that you work with.
2: So my position basically works on depredation issues for Nebraska state's big game species. So I deal with certain depredation issues dealing with elk, mule deer, whitetail. We have both out here pronghorn and geese and turkey are the main species that I tend to work with out here in the Northwest district. And each species is a a different type of scenario, I guess. How we would deal with a, a goose issue would be different than, you know, a deer issue. And that's basically because, you know, they damage different crops and their types of damages are going to be different. Believe it or not, this end, we do have some geese issues and they tend to fly in during you know those migratory seasons and occasionally we have the resident populations down in the southwest panhandle that are around all year round but they'll fly into different producers fields whether it's beans or corn and you know they're they can be pretty destructive they can eat a, a whole bean field pretty quickly elk on the other hand they'll come into different crop fields and same thing they don't necessarily eat the crops like the geese do, they just tend to be larger animals. So they're a little more destructive as they're walking around. And at least elk, corn seems to be the predominant crop that we have issues with for them. So it just, it depends on the species. And even within, you know, different goose issues, we handle each one differently. We've had scenarios with yeast depredations, like I was saying with the bean fields, I've been to a couple of those. um, And I mentioned our pyro pistols. Well, we'll use those to haze the geese. They'll shoot a pyro over that flock to get them up and to, you know, have them fly up out of the field. To them, it's, it resembles a hunting season because those pyro pistols sound like shotguns and, you know, that'll get them up and moving out of the field. But we've also had scenarios with geese that during the spring and summer months when they nest, they'll pick areas that aren't the most conducive or convenient for geese to be nesting um, outside of occasionally we'll have you know geese nesting in city parks or outside of hospitals um, and how we deal with those issues there's egg oiling that you can do and occasionally we do during their molt which is when they're transitioning losing their feathers um, and can't fly we will relocate those those individuals so even with you know, one species geese you can handle a depredation scenario in different ways. Maria,
1: you mentioned egg oiling. You're so full of information. You know we're going to have to take a pause and you're <laughs> going to have to talk to us a little bit about egg oiling if you will.
2: Yeah. So, egg oiling, there is a an application for you can go through the Fish and Wildlife Service so you have to have a permit. So you'd put your application in. I believe that's an ongoing thing right now for those dates for landowners or folks that you know need to use that you have to register between January 1st and June 30th of the year that those nests and eggs would be destroyed so for egg oiling basically you'd go in and you'd basically oil that shell so it makes the nest not viable and those those adults will abandon that nest and you know choose a different spot to nest in especially if you do it year after year, they start to realize that, you know, that area might not be a good spot for a nest because they never have a viable nest. So that's one way to kind of move those geese out of some of those areas that, you know, aren't the best spots to nest in case in point, you know, outside of a hospital or a pond that's outside of an office building, something like that.
1: Sure. And Maria, you're going to have to fact check me live here because I'm no expert, but My understanding was that egg oiling was beneficial compared to just coming in and destroying the eggs, because in some instances, the geese will continue to sit on that nest, not realizing it's viable. Whereas if you were to just come in and destroy the eggs, then the geese might go and just, you know, 10 feet away, build another nest and lay another set of eggs. But instead, they devote their time to these non-viable eggs, therefore, you know, not continuing the problem. Is that accurate at all?
2: Yep, that is correct. Um, So that oiling, yep, they'll continue to sit on that nest. And you're right, instead of trying to lay a second clutch, they devote all their time to those oiled eggs. So that helps in coming years that those geese trying to find somewhere else to nest.
1: Well, we've talked a lot about geese, but I know another species that I tend to hear the most about, at least in Kansas, is depredation permits for deer. So is there a reason that we tend to hear more about deer?
2: So I think, It just depends on your region and where you are Uh, out here. We do have deer issues and, you know, we have both species out here. So yeah, it, it just depends on region and, you know, going with that, it also depends on what crops people are planting and that'll kind of, you know, establish, you know, what species are probably going to be the most predominant species that you're working with when it comes to depredation issues. Out here, I'd say our number one species that I receive complaints about are the elk. And then, you know, pronghorn are probably, I would say pronghorn are about, you know, the second second species on my list that tend to cause problems for some of our, our farmers and producers out here. Deer do as well. I know uh, my counterpart, Brian Perks in the Southwest, he deals with a lot of deer complaints I actually dealt with a deer complaint last week and, you know, every scenario is different. We kind of do a case by case basis when we go out and uh, deal with a complaint. But for us, you know, deer complaints, we, we tend to push, you know, allowing hunters out. That'll really get the deer up and moving. So that would be one way that we would deal with the deer complaints out here. So yeah, I think it's just a regional thing that's why you hear about one species versus another, you know, depending on where you are. Maria, I imagine it's a
1: tough balancing act too. Maybe the reason that I hear so much about deer in Kansas is because deer are such a desirable game species. And so I can imagine where those depredation scenarios can almost be controversial. So that's really interesting. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that later.
0: And Brian's just kind of give a geography image for our listeners where Maria is in our panhandle, more, I guess, open sands, a little bit of hills, but then yet again, flat. If, you, if you're checking out the map of Nebraska, where Brian is in more of the southwest corner, and so it's more of a river treed area that, and then I think that's maybe what has to do with the habitat of why he has maybe more of a deer population, And then we'll get into this in a conversation here soon is where we now have even antlerless river extended permits that will help with that as well. And then I think now there's probably only whitetail species. You had mentioned Maria, two different species in Nebraska deer. For those not familiar with our state, again, we have mule and whitetail species So listeners, like, pull up your Google, and if you're not familiar with the differences, there are differences between the two species, and maybe that'll be half to have a topic and a different conversation in day, and kind of a cool thing how they are are different. So, Maria, your position, uh, depredation biologist, is a new position here in Nebraska, and and we briefly mentioned that a little bit ago. The position was created to establish management practices with landowners, uh, steps to take before depredation permits are issued. As a landowner myself, if I came to the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission with proof that a big game animal was destroying my crops, what practices would you suggest?
2: Basically, when we get a depredation complaint or if I get one or receive one at the office, normally it normally involves a phone call with that landowner. I'll normally ask, you know, Is it fence that's damaged? Is it irrigated crops, row crops? Do you have maybe a shelter belt with trees that are getting destroyed? So it kind of all stems off of what the actual issue is. And from there, I do a site visit. So I would come out, I would meet with you on your property or your ground. And let's say, for instance, you have deer that are, you know, out in your shelter belts and, you know, they're rubbing up on the trees. They're, they're ruining some of these smaller trees that you have planted, you know, that are supposed to help with snow, you know, with some of those neighboring crops. Well, we would kind of go out and, you know, assess the situation. I take some photos. Occasionally I'll go back out uh, different times a day to watch, to see when the deer are most active and when they're utilizing those trees and come up with different suggestions. One of the big, things for tree damages is you know a tree wrap uh, if it is a couple of trees and they're a little larger we can we can actually put a tree wrap around them so that would be one way to mitigate some of those damages or we could do an offset electric fence which would be um, basically two strands of you know electric fence and that offset, fence, which would be like one in front of the other, alters the depth perception for those deer. So then they don't want to jump that fence to get into the trees and damage those trees. So we, we throw ideas like that out. We have other tactics like propane cannons. We can actually bring out a propane cannon and it has, those propane cannons have the ability that we can adjust them for when they actually sound, you know, sound off that propane noise. Um, we can adjust the frequency for those. It could be every couple of minutes up to, you know, maybe once an hour or even longer. And that is a nice hazing, you know, technique for those, those deer as well, because it simulates that sound of a rifle or someone shooting at them. We also could offer uh, utilizing your ground for public hunting, you know, trying to get you in contact with some public hunters if you or your family don't have, you know, actual deer tags uh, for the gear. That's an option as well. We Hunting is probably the most effective tool when it comes to a depredation issue or damage control. That seems to be one of the most effective things for us. And when all else fails, we have something called a damage control permit. And that is a permit that can be issued to that landowner. They have to fill out a request and we review it. And on that request, it's basically asking for a damage control permit tag, which you would list yourself or any other residents within the area. They have to be a Nebraska resident to come out and actually um, shoot those, those animals, so to use lethal control. So we take those requests really serious. We'll, we'll go through those requests. Uh, we talk with Lincoln. I'll talk to my boss at Maloney out in Lincoln and my immediate supervisor, Hunter Bailey, who's my district manager, we review those. And all the folks that are listed on that permit, which we would call them the shooters, they also get vetted and run through the conservation officers. So they do a background check on them to make sure no one has any felonies and things like that. And once we get the AOK and everything is clear, um, we can issue a permit so let's say that scenario with our deer in the shelter belt let's say there were about 20 deer and they were you know causing damages we might issue a damage control permit you know to shoot 5 of either sex or you know let's say it was mostly does that are out there well we can you know tailor that permit to be you know 5 antlerless only mule deer or 5 antlered mule deer it just it depends on the scenario Um, But those damage control permits are always an option. We do try to utilize other means before we go down that road. But sometimes you just, you have to issue those. And that is the right way to deal with certain issues. So every, every scenario is different. And we handle each, you know, case by case basis differently. But that is always an option. So there's, there's multiple different options depending on the damages that you're actually having occur on your ground.
0: And to add to that, Maria, once they've issued the permit, and let's say they do take down five does, what do they do with the meat? I mean, is there regulations to those, to the animals after they have been taken out?
2: Uh, Yes. So those damage control permits is for pretty much immediate action. And it's, it's just for a specific area. So it would just be for let's say that section that your shelter belt is in you know we we predefine everything in the description on that permit so you can't just take that that permit and you know go to the different end of your property and start harvesting deer but once your deer is harvested yep it it's on the permit that you sign and that we sign that uh it's for human consumption so when you, you harvest your animals, that'll go to the folks that are on the permit, and you also have the option to donate that meat if you want it to, but that meat needs to be utilized, so yes, you, you actually have to use that meat.
1: Huh, Maria, that's really interesting, and I'm glad that, you know, there are efforts in place to make sure that we're preventing that wanton waste. That's really interesting. I'm curious, so with these depredation permits, are those issued and to be used during the normal deer seasons? Or can those be used outside of deer season?
2: So those immediate damage control permits, the DCPs that we call them, they can be issued during season if needed. We try to issue them, you know, outside of season. If if season's open, we'll try to get some, some folks out there, like public hunters that actually have tags, general tag holders to come on out and try to harvest that way. Now, if we have a landowner who is allowing hunting and is being very cooperative and that is not working, having those those rotating hunters come through, that's not working, we can add that DCP to it. And then that's where that landowner will, you know, vet a list of folks that they want on their permit.
1: Okay. Well, and I know there are um, some organizations too that have recently kind of kick-started a new effort to try to connect youth and young adult hunters with some of these areas where landowners need to take critters, usually deer, off of their land. And one of those that we have both in Kansas and in Iowa, I know Rachel's not on with us today, but it's the Pass It On Outdoor Mentors Group. So their whole shtick is basically to connect kids and young adults with these mentored hunting opportunities. Um, just to do a little plug for the outdoor mentors, they really take care of all the details of the hunt, as far as finding a place to hunt, connecting with these landowners, and then also pairing these mentor mentees. Their mentors are fully vetted, so it's it's a great program and it's a good first step before it sounds like those DCPs are administered. Maria.
2: Yeah, it does, and I know here in the state of Nebraska, uh, we don't necessarily have that, but we do have our antler list database. So you can actually go on to Nebraska game parks website and you can look up the antlers database and it works both ways. As a landowner, you can get on there and you can actually search by your county and all. And you can find folks that way that you can, as a landowner call and ask, you know, Hey, have you filled your tag yet? I'm having some issues. Would you like to come on out and harvest off my property? And you know, general members of the public can actually go on there and they can actually input all their information in the different areas, you know, that they'd be willing to come out and hunt on. So it works both ways. And then we do utilize that a lot uh, for our deer issues. So when we're trying to connect our landowners with some of those public hunters, we we have, we suggest the antler list database to them. It's just a way to get that public in contact with those folks that need the help.
0: Nebraska, we actually do have some we offer mentored hunts, both youth and women hunts on these antlerless areas. And in fact, coming up in January, we're going to have a becoming an outdoor woman, uh, mentored hunt in the the river antlerless area. And we match them with landowners that are on your on your antlerless database. So that's pretty cool, in that we provide those opportunities both mentored and uh, as a hunter, you know, we can encourage you to reach out to these landowners that are, we know they have the deer population and together as landowners and hunters can, can work together to manage these populations.
2: Yeah. It's an amazing opportunity to do that.
0: Absolutely. And, and it's a, I mean, it's a list. It, there's a lot of opportunities there and, beautiful country to to go hunting Um, so as hunters Mm -hmm. you know we recognize the big game population are best managed through hunting and we've briefly discussed this ways to to help each other out what ways can we encourage hunters to reach out to areas where deer elk turkey or other huntable animals are overpopulated
2: so like we briefly talked about that antlerless database for deer is a great way to to reach out and do that for other species like elk and pronghorn at least for me out here in my district whenever someone does have a depredation issue or a damage complaints one of my first questions to them is will you allow the public out to hunt and i explain the benefits of actually having hunters out and you know how that's one of our most effective tools you know for damage management and if they say yes I'm willing to work with the public and have the public hunters out when we have folks call our district office looking for places to hunt for a particular species depending on the tag that they have I always you know offer up some of those folks that are having those issues so I ask permission from my landowners that are having those issues if I can give out their information and put them in contact with the public that are looking for places to hunt. And if they say, yes, you know, when they call us, I'll go ahead and do that. So for instance, in the Northwest district, I do have a list of folks, even people that don't have damage per se on their land that are looking for hunters. I have a list for different species of folks that want their information passed out to those hunters. So that's another way you can reach out and call one of the district offices or you know, whatever local biologist you have in your area, they, they should know or would have a good feel for different areas that you can go out and hunt and, you know, have a good chance at filling those tags or at least having an awesome hunt. So that would be another way for hunters to reach out and, you know, try to make contact with those landowners that do need the help.
0: Maria, tell us about the most recent commission approved efforts to manage elk populations.
2: So, this year we actually um, had the commission look over a new elk management plan. And along with that elk management plan, a couple new things for depredation have come out that'll be some pretty useful tools for us. The commission earlier this year approved a depredation season. So, how that is going to work, it's going to be based on a a geographical area. So if I have an area, let's say, for example, here in the Northwest where multiple neighbors are experiencing pronghorn issues or if they're experiencing elk issues, we can take a look at that that region and sit down and talk with all those neighbors and landowners and basically have a small depredation season. And those tags would be open to the public. So I believe permitting is working on getting that part of it up and running. I don't know if it'll be up and running this year or if that'll start next year, but that is one of those newer tools that we do have. So a damage control permit that we can issue now is for immediate action on a particular piece of property, like a particular pivot or a particular shelter belt. This new depredation season opens that area up a little more to a larger area. So you'd be able to hunt maybe that whole landowner's property plus the neighbor's property that's having issues versus one pivot. So that's that's kind of the differences between the damage control permit versus I guess a depredation permit now for a depredation season. And the newest tool that we have uh, that the commission just approved is the earned uh, landowner elk permit. And if you own or lease 80 acres of land, and you have 10 antlerless elk harvested off of your property, you're eligible for a free elk permit. So that's that's trying to help some of our um, landowners in the elk zone that typically have a lot of elk on their property, and they're trying to utilize, you know hunting as a way to manage their damages. Um, so that's just kind of a little incentive for some of the landowners to have the public come out and be able to fill some of those tags. And I believe that permit that they earn after those 10 antlerless elk are harvested is an either either sex tag. So it could be used for a cow or for a bull. And yep, I believe immediate family members as well are eligible for that permit. Not just the landowner um themselves
0: and and for Aunt Louis uh, for those listening, basically is is your female is your cow or a young bull, correct, okay, so
2: yep, it would be a cow or a very young bull, so like a bull calf,
0: okay, yeah you know, with being in the game and parks commission, uh, even if we were to sit in the coffee shop, we tend to hear depredation myths just to wrap up some kind of funny myths what do you what do you hear or what would be some oh more so hearsay than anything in the depredation world
2: huh I'm trying to think if I've actually heard of any you know one
0: one in our area and it's kind of died down for a while so perhaps it may have been popular more before you came to Nebraska was that the turkeys. There are so many turkeys that they are eating all the pheasant eggs.
2: Yeah, yep. That that would be a myth. I know they. <laughs> yeah, they don't necessarily eat the pheasant eggs. It's more of like a, a competition for resources for them. Yeah, but yeah. It- I've heard that. Another one that I've I've heard out here um, quite a bit deals with another species I haven't touched on that I, I work with are the mountain lions. And another myth that we hear is, you know, if you find prey or livestock in a tree that, you know, a lion definitely drug it up the tree and that that's, that's definitely a myth. Leopards are the the cats that like to drag things into trees and mountain lions actually bury and they cover and cache their food. So they're not going to drag, they're not going to drag their prey into a tree. (laughs) So I hear that, you know, occasionally floating around. Um, That's a rumor I hear or a myth, I should say. Other than that, I don't, I don't know if I hear of many myths.
0: Yeah. The myths probably are associated with the mountain lions more than anything I suspect. Yeah. Well, Maria, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge as we, we start to wrap up. Is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners in addition to the conversations we've had today?
2: For some of the folks out there that are listening and that are having some damage issues, don't hesitate to actually reach out. You can get on the Game and Parks website. And if you go to the depredation page, so Google Nebraska Game and Parks Depredation, there's a form at the bottom you can fill out with your name, contact information, and some of the issues you might be having if you don't know who to contact. And that'll get sent to the right person depending on where you are in the state. And you know, don't hesitate to, to reach out and contact myself or maybe Brian Perks down in the Southwest uh, when it comes to some of these issues we're always willing to help. And like we talked about today, there are so many different ways that we can work on some of those depredation and damage management issues that, you know, we go case by case and we'll find something that works for you. So just don't be afraid to reach out and give us a call. That's what we're here for.
0: And on the other side of that, I'm going to encourage our listeners to reach out to our websites and to our offices even your local conservation officers, your biologists, and reach out to find the lands that are populated with deer and need support and help with the managing those populations. Uh, we got a lot of ears out there that are adult onset hunters that perhaps don't have a location to hunt. I'd encourage you to to seek this out. You may have to travel more than a couple miles from home and that's okay. Set up a deer camp, get yourself a hotel room and or find a place that honestly could be a lot easier for yourself to get your first deer. And if it is antlerless doe, let me tell you a doe tastes the same as a buck, maybe even perhaps a little bit better. So, check that out, spread the word around that populations are there, and let's support our landowners, our agriculturists as well, and become a team. Thank you again, Maria, for joining us. As always, we encourage our listeners to follow us on our Facebook page of She Goes Outdoors. We're going to launch some show notes as well, some contact information. Uh, I'm going to ask that Tana and Rachel point us also in directions to find information relating to their depredation permits and we'll put that in our show notes that will be on the website continue to follow us as you do share our links with your friends because we got a lot to share out there and we're always looking for new topics so send us a message as well all right guys well it's been a pleasure and we can't wait to see you outdoors